0: Now, before we actually get to Haggai, um, let me remind you where we've been. We are in a series, we're five weeks into a series called The Rebuilders, with the theme verse being Amos 9.14. You'll never forget it. I will bring my people Israel back from exile, and they will rebuild. Now, Where we finished last week was in Ezra chapter 4. Now you stay at Haggai if you've found him, Haggai, whatever. And let me read the last verse from last week, Ezra chapter 4. What we saw last week was a chapter outlining the opposition that the rebuilders faced. So just in a nutshell, God's people went into exile in Babylon for 70 years because of idolatry and injustice and various other things. God took them out of their own land, put them in Babylon, 70 years there to get a few things straightened out. And then he raised up a king called Cyrus, who brought them back again, or allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. So the book of Ezra starts off with them beginning to rebuild the temple. It lists all the people who came back, the foundation being laid, the altar being built, sacrifice, feasting, everything just awesome. And then last week in Ezra chapter 4, opposition rose up and Ezra 4 finishes with this the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. So you have God's people inspired and stirred up to rebuild, to go out and do something for God. And it comes to a standstill because of opposition. Not opposition with swords and spears and weapons. Opposition from guys who wrote letters. Okay, that's the sort of people that were opposing them. And the opposition caused the temple build to come to a standstill for about 16 years. So on our timeline, there's where we are for Haggai and Zechariah. It's about 520 BC and for 16 years, the work on the temple has stopped. And we're going to look today at how it restarts again in Ezra 5.1. It says, now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And now we jump to Haggai chapter 1. So 16 years have passed. No building has been carried out on the temple in those 16 years. And God sends a prophet to get the project started again. So let's read the first half a dozen verses of Haggai 1. We're going to aim to do 11 verses of it today. We'll see how we get on. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Those are the two leaders of the building project. And Haggai comes to them with a message from God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So who is this Haggai guy that shows up? Well, we don't really know. All we know is that he is a prophet. We don't know much about his background. We've got some dates. He is one of the kinder prophets in the Old Testament in terms of he writes down the dates of when he gives his messages. So we can see that his ministry of publicly proclaiming the word of God to the people lasted only four months. That was it. His book is the second shortest book of the Bible. It is very easy to overlook it. It is very difficult to find it. And you can sort of dismiss this as not being particularly valuable stuff, but it is. It's a class little book. And a prophet, just so you understand what a prophet does, a prophet does not predict the future. It is quite rare in the scriptures for a prophet to speak exclusively of what is out there in the future. What a prophet does in the Bible, the vast majority of prophetic speech in the Bible, is a guy or a girl who comes along and they bring a word from God and speak it to the people in their present situation. It's not just saying in the future, in 500 years, this will happen or that will happen. Occasionally, that does happen in prophecy. But most of the time, it is God speaking to his people in the very real-time situation that they're living in. Because he is a speaking God and he communicates. And that's what a prophet does. Here's what God is saying and brings it to the people. Haggai's words are pretty sharp. They're pretty potent. They're stingy. But every now and again, we need a stingy word to actually get us back into action. This is a book that is filled with grace because even though God is bringing strong words to the leaders and to the people about the fact that they've quit building, it's still gracious of God to do that. He doesn't just abandon them. He doesn't just say, you're useless, just let let you go. He brings words into their midst to get them going again. And he goes to the leadership first, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. This does not mean that leaders are the only people who can hear from God. Absolutely not. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. All people, all Christians have the ability to hear God through his word and through his Holy Spirit and through various other means. But in this case, Haggai, first of all, goes to the leaders. Because if he can get the leaders stirred up, then the people will follow. In verse 2, we're going to see what some of the problems are in, uh, in the heart of these builders. Verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Have you ever said the time has not yet come to do something? Do you ever procrastinate? Do you know what procrastinate means? It means to faff around. It means to put off doing something that, you, that now needs to be done. Now, I bet you if we were to go around the room right now, and we've time to do it because there's only like three of you here, but if we were to go around the room and just ask each person, what are you procrastinating about right now today? You'd probably all be able to give an answer. I'll not do it. I am currently procrastinating about replacing the key in my, or the battery in my car key. And every time I get into the car, it beeps at me, tells me I need to replace the battery. And I think, I wonder how long, <laughs> I wonder how long that you, know, you get away with that for before it won't work. And this has been going on for about a week and a half. And I really need to do it. Uh, do you procrastinate? Do you put stuff off? Usually for me, it's something to do with the car. <laughs> I'm good at getting everything else done. But things to do with the car usually just sit for, on the long finger for a while. These people were putting off God's work. And they said, the time has not yet come to do this. Have you ever thought like this? I will pray after I have done this, 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 and this. After I do all those other things, then I'm going to pray. And you do all those other things and then you fall asleep because it takes you all day to do them. Or after I have achieved this and this, I'll pursue God with a bit more vigor. Or maybe when I'm older, I'm young now, I'm only in my teens or 20s or whatever, and it seems to be something that more serious old dudes do, I will put it off until the future. I don't have to reach far back in my memory to recall conversations about how people will do all sorts of things for God, but they just need to sort out a couple of other things first. So it's like I'll be there and, and I'll help and I'm you know I'm I'm all guns blazing for this, but I just I've got these couple of things and once I get those sorted out, then I'll get more serious about God. Such thinking is really dangerous. Life is a mist. That was the first sermon this year. Life is a mist. Just goes back or goes by in a blink, in a flash. A year, two years, three years. 16 years without anything being done on God's house, and what the temple illustrates, and we made this point when we started Ezra, but just to remind you again, the temple—it's not about a building. To take these stories in the Old Testament, in Ezra and Haggai and Nehemiah, and use them to try to get people to build a new building to have church in—is not what it's about. For them. the the whole purpose of prioritizing the temple was a way of saying we are going to put God's presence at the very center of our lives. When you go back in the Old Testament a bit further and read Numbers chapter 2, you will find that as the, the children of Israel moved around in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle, this tent where God's presence was said to dwell, and they would pitch the tabernacle and then the 12 tribes of Israel would arrange themselves around it. Three in the north and three on the east and three on the south and three on the west. And it would all be set up in such a way that if you had a drone up above the camp of the Israelites looking down, you would see this people have put the presence of God at the very center of everything. And that's why it is important for this temple, this house to be rebuilt. It's not to get a nice swish new building to sing songs in. It is to put God's presence at the very center. Because they had pushed God's presence out to the outside. Now, come on. We do this. We do this. We, we we know that God is meant to be at the center, but we put him out onto the fringe of our lives. We don't put him out altogether because we know we need him, but we tend to let God drift to the margins of life rather than being at the center, which is what the temple was meant to show. And therefore, when Haggai comes and brings his ministry, he's not dealing with false religion that some of the prophets deal with, He's not dealing with social injustice that I mentioned at the very start of this series in in Amos. He's not dealing with idolatry like Isaiah was dealing with idolatry and Jeremiah dealing with idolatry. God's people in this period of history, 520 BC, they're not struggling with sin. They're not being attacked from enemies. They are not knee-deep in idolatry. They are spiritually stuck. They have stagnated. The word is apathy. Apathy. That's where they're at. And that is, you know, I think this dude, Haggai, has got one of the toughest gigs in the Old Testament because he's not dealing with those things that I've just listed. He's dealing with the people that are apathetic. They're just like, Nye. Whatever. You know? Apathy literally means it comes from a pathos and it means no passion. Another word that is used is the word indifferent. Why has it not come up? There it is. No, he's come up. Okay, we're back. Indifference. Indifference. Indifference basically means this makes no difference to me. I don't care. That's apathy. That's where the people were. They had no passion for God. They had no passion for the things of God. They just said, it's not time to do the temple building stuff yet. We'll just push that out and we'll do it sometime in the future. And they were stuck in this dead, cold, spiritual state. And you know what is one of the most dangerous places to be? And it creeps in so easily, so easily. And you find yourself just not caring. Your passion for God is gone. You are indifferent. So this guy here, whose name was Ali, <laughs> but he was a guy. Um, Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor, was a Holocaust survivor. He died a few years ago. And he famously said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Although it probably wasn't him that said it at first, he was probably quoting from somewhere else. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. You see, if you hate something, that hatred is, pro- is motivated by, by passion. If you hate division in the church, it's because you love unity in the church. If you hate abortion, it's because you love life. If you hate injustice, it's because you love righteousness and justice. So hatred of things comes from a place of passion, not hatred of people, hatred of things. But indifference has no passion associated with it at all. It just doesn't care. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's such a dangerous place to be. So Haggai comes with this tremendously difficult job of trying to rouse these people out of indifference. They know that the time has come. Because back at the start of Ezra, Ezra records how Cyrus was stirred up by God and how the people were stirred up by God and everything was falling into place. They know that it is time, but they have allowed their hearts to grow cold and apathetic. They're still living in a prophetic word from 70 years before. Whenever they arrived in Babylon 70 years ago, Jeremiah said to them, you're going to be here for a long time, folks. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, settle yourselves. And they have come out of Babylon 70 years later, but they're still living in the Babylonian time zone spiritually. They are still living according to that message from Jeremiah. And they're just trying to settle down, build their houses, look after themselves. And God at this point in history has called them to something different and said, no, rebuild my house. Put my presence back at the center of your lives. Are we procrastinating? Does any of this ring a bell with you? Are you faffing around with the presence of God. It's so easy to do. I am highly unlikely to engage in idolatry. Yeah? Um, Lots of other things that you read about in the scriptures that, that people could rebel against God and engage in I feel, and I don't mean to be arrogant, I feel that I'm not vulnerable to them, but I'm vulnerable to this. God can very, very easily get slipped out of the center and towards the margins of life because life is so darn busy. And there's so many other things clamoring for your attention. Jesus warned against delay in John 4. After he had... Sat at the, the well with the Samaritan woman, and she had gone back to her town and then was coming back out of her town with a crowd of people following her. Jesus said to the disciples, Don't you have a saying, it's still four months on to harvest. That was the faffers mantra. You know? That was always the excuse for not doing something. They would say, I'll do it later, it's still four months to the harvest. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. He says, open your eyes and look at the fields. And as the disciples would have opened their eyes and looked, they would have seen Samaritan woman and all her mates from the village walking out towards Jesus. And Jesus says, look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. Stop delaying. Stop putting it off. Stop making it something that's going to happen in the future instead of happening now. So there's that warning about delay and procrastination. There's also then a warning about priorities. Verse 4, God says to the people, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, panelling is not a sin. (laughs) Okay. If you have got nice panelling in your house, that's fine. Don't go home and rip it off and throw it in the fire. It's okay. I'm going to come back to the panelling a little bit later because I do think there's something in it. But the point is, back in those days, to have panelling in your house was pretty luxurious stuff. You got panelling in a palace and you should get panelling in a temple. But not many people would have had it in their houses. And the point that Haggai is trying to make is not what sort of house you live in, what size it is, whether you have panelling or not. The point is that your priorities are in the wrong place. You are chasing after your own stuff, your own comfort. And that has become top priority for you. And God is not at the centre. Again, it's not about the building. It's not about the, t- the temple. It is about what it represents. God's presence at the center with his people. And these people were focused on their own luxury, their own comfort. And again, this is so easy to fall into. Come on. So many of us, even if you do think of it in context of a house, so many of us have built a house or renovated a house or even just painted the blinking house, whatever. We've done something and we just find it becomes obsessive. And we never give time to the presence of God in our midst. Haggai also has a repeated phrase that he uses. It comes up in verse 5, and in fact, it comes up five times in the book. Now, in a book this short, if the guy says something five times, it's probably important. And what he says is, give careful thought to your ways. Your Bible might say, consider your ways but you'll get it, I think, twice in chapter 1 and three times in chapter 2 or vice versa. And and you know what? Sometimes God's word is, is profound and it's deep and it's challenging and it can be a wee bit hard to get your head around and sometimes it's quite simple. Haggai says to the people, do you know what you do? Think. He calls them to serious thought about how they're living. Now, again, I have to raise the hand here and say... Guilty. Thinking is something that I tend to do when I'm doing something else. I will think when I'm driving. I will think when I'm cutting the grass. I will think when I'm washing the car. I'll think as a sort of second activity alongside something else. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago who had quite a lot of work to do outside. Uh, And I sort of felt sorry for him. And I said, well, you know, your back will be a bit sore after that. And he said, no, it's good. It's thinking time. I thought to myself, well, that's nice on one level. But on another level, if thinking time only comes whenever you're engaged in a whole pile of hard work, that's maybe not ideal. See, we love to do. I don't know about you, but I love to do. I hate stopping to think. (laughs) I just want to do stuff. I want to get stuff done. Sound familiar? And not think. Thinking is a secondary process. Here's, here's a quote. Shame Scott's not here to say it. Can't agree with it on this occasion, but there's Maverick upside down. Uh, and he says to Rooster in this movie, which is really good. It is really good. Uh, you don't have time to think up there if you think you're dead. Can't agree with that. It might work in a fighter plane when you're upside down and you've got enemies chasing you. But in life, no, you need to think. You need to think. We need to shut off the noise and the distractions and the busyness of life and actually consider our ways. A discipline of just getting quietness. Not thinking while you're doing something, but just thinking. So maybe here's a homework for today. To take even 20 minutes. Doesn't sound like long. 20 minutes and sit in a chair somewhere with nothing to distract you. Nothing. Not a book. No music. No TV on. Just 20 minutes of just sitting. And allow some of that mess in your head to unravel a little bit. (laughs) I'm really guilty of not doing that to seriously reflect on life. Because what we'll find out later is as they reflect on life, they're going to get a bit of reality check as to why they are where they are. So we're called to think. We're also called to listen. Again, dead simple, but this comes up in chapter one. If you've got your Bible open and you want to glance at verse two, you will see at the start of verse two, this is what the Lord Almighty says. You will see in verse three, The word of the Lord came. You will see in verse 5, as up on the screen, now this is what the Lord Almighty says. You will see in verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says. And you will see in verse 9, where is it? Declares the Lord Almighty. Again, five times, nine verses. and, And Haggai is making a point. Folks, do you want to get this rebuilding started? Time to listen to God. Time to actually really seriously think, consider your ways, reflect, and think about the Word of God. That is the only thing that will get it started. This is the classic biblical example of something has ground to a halt. How will it restart? Will it restart from motivational sermons? Will it restart from cracking the whip and pushing people to do stuff that they don't want to do? It will restart when the Word of God comes into it. That's when it will restart. And Haggai is is emphasizing that five times in those few verses, that this is about God's Word that will restart the work that has come to a stop. They are called not only to think and not only to listen, but they're called to action. But please note the order. You think first, and then you act. If you think and don't do anything, that's not very good. If you act without thinking, that's usually not good. But you think first. And then you act. And in verse 8, Haggai says to the people, Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house. That's going to be hard work. Going up the mountains. Just going up the mountain is hard work. Never mind cutting down a tree and then getting it back down the mountain. Hard work. But to build God's house will involve some hard work. It might not be glamorous. And I think this this verse actually... I've always held it as a beautiful picture of prayer. Because in the Bible, going up the mountain, when you read about somebody going up a mountain, they're going up to meet God. Think Jesus at the transfiguration that we did a month or two ago. Going up the mountain, Elijah, Moses, lots of people go up the mountain to meet with God. And I see it as as a picture of prayer. As you go up the mountain in prayer, you get the resources. In Haggai, it's timber. To build a literal house for God. But as we go up the mountain of prayer, and again, this is this is the part of life that can very easily go to the margin, go to the fringe, be neglected, be done while you're doing something else. If we prioritize prayer, we will then get the resources, the timber to build the house. Now, I know it's summer and I know people are away, and therefore prayer meeting can be a wee bit thin. People need a break. That's completely understandable. You can't sort of drive home from England (laughs) to go to the prayer meeting. But nothing will be built without resources. And resources will not be acquired without going up mountains in prayer. And I just lay it before us. As, as even now, as we're only in the start of the summer, but maybe already starting to think about September and next term and next year and, and what will we do and how will we schedule, I would beg you to put a big sort of square on your calendar, on your phone, repeating every week on a Tuesday night prayer to get the resources to build the house for the presence of the Lord. So they're called to action. They're called to also in verse eight to to recenter themselves. They're, they're building this house so that God, at the end of the verse, may take pleasure in it and be honored, or may be glorified. The word glory in Hebrew literally means weight, weight, as in w-e-i-g-h-t, weight. Something that is glorious is weighty. It's serious. It's heavy. And they are they're called to build a house that God may be glorified in. If you've ever sort of looked at this verse in Romans, Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and sort of wondered what that means. I think it simply means when you fall short of the glory of God, you fail to give him the weight, the honor that he is due. You fail to make him central and glorious in your life. So they're called to honor God and put him back at the center. We're moving towards the end. They're called to a reality check. This is the outcome of their thinking. So so Haggai says multiple times, consider your ways, give careful thought, sit down for 20 minutes like you were told in a chair and just think. And you'd be amazed at some of the stuff that you might figure out. Verse 6. You have planted much, but harvested little. and this is the the state their lives are in. You ever feel like this? You work, you're busy, you're trying really hard, but nothing seems to come together. You have planted much, but harvested little. Vegetable gardeners. <laughs> you know how that feels, yeah? Um, I remember coming out of church years ago one morning at Lisnadell, and... Open on my phone. I can't quote what Monty Don... You know Monty Don, the gardening dude off TV? Uh, He had just tweeted about pigeons (laughs) eating all his his cabbages uh, in one morning. And he used a very unpleasant word about these pigeons. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. Reminds me of somebody who's never warm. Um, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In fact, what he's basically saying, all the stuff that you're doing, it's not working. It's not, that you, it's not that you're not working, you're earning your wages, but you put them in a bag with holes in it. They just disappear. You've got food and you've got drink, but you're never satisfied. He's saying to these people, you've got everything you want, everything you want, but you're deeply, deeply unsatisfied because your priorities are wrong. This is the result of actually considering your ways and giving careful thought. You start to realize when you stop busting yourself and chasing your tail and trying to do everything and you just sit down, you start to realize that all of the things you're trying to do are not working. And it's not because you're doing them wrong. It's because God's not at the center. In verse 9, he goes on to say, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. This is God speaking. I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. Verse 11, I called for a drought. Who called for a drought? Was it Satan? No, it was God. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Last week, throughout Ezra 4, all of the opposition that the builders faced that caused them to stop building, in the background all along, I kept saying, I can hear the hiss of a snake. In the accusations and the tactics and the work of the opposition, you could hear Satan at work. This week, when their crops are failing, when they're dissatisfied, when their wages just seem to vanish, there's no snake in the background here. This is God. (laughs) This is God doing this. What you brought home, so you went out in the fields and you brought your crops home, God says, I blew it away. I call I called for a drought. The reason your crops are failing is not because of your bad agricultural methods. It is because I am judging you for not putting me at the center of your lives. I'm trying to get your attention, God says. I'm trying to get your attention. It reflects other stuff in the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy 28. Massive long chapter about what will happen if they go into the land and obey God and what will happen if they go into the land and disobey God. And in the long section about disobedience, God says to them, you're going to sow much seed in the field, but you'll harvest little. Because locusts will devour it. We bugs. (laughs) You're going to be thwarted by little bugs. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, and you, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. Not snakes, worms. You'll have olive trees throughout your country, but you'll not use the oil because the olives will drop off. God says to me, if you do not put me at the center, nothing else will work. Nothing else will work. Give careful thought to your ways and you will realize that loads of things aren't working. This is not prosperity gospel. This is just God. (laughs) Things aren't working because I'm trying to get your attention so that you would put me back at the center. Have you got theology for this? This idea that God blows the crop away and that God calls for the drought. In Hebrews 12 The writer says that if we're not disciplined, then we are not legitimate children. We're not true sons and daughters. God disciplines those he loves. Like a father, like a mother disciplines a child. He disciplines those that he loves. And God is touching the important things in their lives to get their attention. And say, you've pushed me to the margin for 16 years time to actually listen and reprioritize. In Haggai 1:10 I don't know why this is taking so long to come up. Oh, lads. Yeah, Even though yeah because of you the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. That's Haggai 1:10. Because of you because you have not put me at the center of your lives it sounds very similar to genesis 3:17 where after god has dealt with the serpent he says to adam because of you the ground is cursed not because you don't know how to dig or plant or sow or whatever but because you have rebelled against me the ground is cursed and there's a word play in hebrew there actually that just in in verses 9 and 11, where it says, My house remains a ruin, therefore I called for a drought. The word ruin and the word drought in Hebrew are almost the same word. There's only one letter different. The problem with these people is that they have separated life. They have separated their life with God from the rest of their lives. And again, we do this. You separate the secular from the sacred. Your job and all the other stuff that you do from your life with God. That's what these people had done. And that's where they were going wrong. They did not see a link between God's presence and their crops. And God's getting their attention with this reality check that actually heaven and earth overlap. You cannot separate them. If you ignore the presence of God, you cannot expect things otherwise to go well. What you build will tell a story. And with this, a finish. What you build, what we build, will tell a story. In Solomon's temple, let me just read a couple of verses from 1 Kings 6, because I want you to get this and see a link to what's going on in Haggai. 1 Kings 6, 14. Solomon built the temple and completed it. Now listen to what he did. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. And covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. The inside of the temple was cedar, carved with girds and open flowers. Everything was cedar, no stone was to be seen. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Now, where would you normally find cherubim? They are angels. They represent heaven. Where would you normally find palm trees and open flowers? They're on the earth. The panelling in the temple was meant to show the people that a flourishing earth was directly linked to heaven. You did not separate them. If you wanted life on earth to flourish, heaven had to be involved. That's what was on the paneling around the temple. And it was designed to tell a story that everyone who walked into that temple would see flowers and trees and all the stuff on the walls and would see angels and would realize that this is a place where heaven and earth overlap. And if if you want life on earth to flourish, then your heavenly spiritual life needs to be flourishing as well. And the problem that the people had in Haggai's day was that they had a story that they were telling as well, but their panels are in the wrong place. They had paneled their houses and what they built was telling a story. It wasn't like the paneling in the temple, which was to tell people that God was first priority and that whenever we have him at the center, life on earth flourishes. That was not the story that was being told in Haggai's day where the people built their own houses and paneled them. They were telling a different story. They were telling a story of procrastination and delay. They were telling a story that their priorities were all out of sync with what they should be, that they were not aligned with God. They were telling a story that life in business and in crops and the economy is separate from life with God. That's the story they were telling by building their own houses and not putting God at the centre, whereas God at the centre was meant to tell the story that earth and heaven overlap and you cannot separate the two. And you know what, you could even start to think, and I haven't gone here at length and won't because I'm done, but you could even start to think about climate change and failing crops and all sorts of upheaval in nature and you could say a lot of that is to do with man's failure to look after the planet, recklessness with the planet's resources, definitely. But you do also wonder, could God be trying to get the attention of humanity that the natural world will not flourish whenever God is being increasingly pushed to the margins and right out that then the crops fail and all other things go wrong as well. So Haggai comes and he brings the word of the Lord. He tells the people to reflect, to think about their ways and get the building work restarted again. Let's pray.